Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And we're starting off the program today with, it was a reunion of sorts. Um, it's a not defi- for defi- us, but definitely a reunion. Yeah, uh, with our, not a reunion with us, but um, we got to see our dear friend, Chris Jin Frangiadis of Spork Pittsburgh and Spork Pitt. And he was having a reunion with his former mentor, uh, a, a wonderful French chef and restaurateur, and now um, uh, the head of the Concierge Guild of Seattle, from Seattle, named Jean-Paul Kissel. Right. And, yes, and uh, we, we had a great time. We talked, we uh, compared notes, we have mutual friends, um, and, and then we, we, we went into the, uh, the depths of the restaurant, away from all the, the throngs in the dining room, to have a sit-down chat with um, Chris and with Jean-Paul. And it's, re- it's really amazing. Was it 20 years or 30 years since they'd seen 20, each other? 20, 20 years. 20 years since they'd seen each other. And, and before that, Jean-Paul gave Chris his very first chef de cuisine, or what was it? No, executive chef job. And we talked about that too. So it, on the whole, it was a whole lot of fun. We had a be, great time. As you'll be able to tell from the car, from the conversation. Well, we've, we've had, first of all, a fabulous meal at uh, Spork Pittsburgh, but we also have had fabulous discussions. Uh, we want to sort of bring you back to when these two people met, and they could explain the circumstances of that. We're going to be talking down to my good friend, Christian Frangiatis, who is the chef restaurateur of Spork Pittsburgh and Spork Pitt, and also his, he calls them his mentors sometimes. Sometimes he calls them his father figure, whatever it is, he's a really good friend. And it's Jean-Paul Kissel. And um, tell us, by the way, how you two encountered each other, because it's a long ago story. Yes, yeah, so in, um, in 1985, I had started doing a, basically a three-year apprenticeship in a French restaurant in Florida. I consequently, when I finished the apprenticeship, wanted to get as far away from Florida as humanly possible and still be in the continental United States. So I made my way to Seattle, where I accepted a job as a sous chef at a, at a small French restaurant. Um, I felt it was time to try to get an executive chef's job at a restaurant in Seattle, which was a lovely place. And... Uh, it just so happened that La Rive Gauche, which was this beautiful French bistro in, in Belltown in the inner city, um, actually needed an executive chef. I met Jean-Paul. He hired me. It was my first executive chef's job, and that was exactly 30 years ago this year. And that is how I originally met Jean-Paul. Now, Jean-Paul, you have actually been in the United States for 50 years, born in France, Give us something of your background. Um, well, I grew up in Paris um, from a large family of uh, seven boys. Um, and, and unfortunately, our father passed away when we were very young. And I grew up with my mother, who was a very good cook, didn't do too many things, but what she did was exquisite. One of my older brothers, Francois, 
went to L'Ecole Hôtelière in Paris, a four-year degree uh, at the college level, uh, did the apprenticeships in uh, Stockholm, in Paris, in London, and eventually emigrated to uh, San Francisco. Uh, we, he worked with uh, uh, a lady that had the, uh, what was it called? I can't even remember the name of that of that place on Sutter Street, uh, a famous French restaurant that he, he worked with. And um, in any case, uh, I grew up in a family where food was very, very important to us. And, and I had the pleasure also uh, for about a year and a half to live in the countryside with my grandmother. And that's where, that's where I learned to gather snails in the, after the rains, uh, pick up dandelion greens in the spring, uh, go hunting for mushrooms, uh, gather mussels off the rocks and oysters of the rocks uh, in the Charente district. And that was my first experience with cooking, really. Uh, when my brother in 1969 uh, told us that he was uh, coming to France to buy equipment to open a restaurant in Seattle where he had uh, young, met a young woman and married and uh, so I was at the time of life I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up and I said well maybe I should finally learn English and come and give you a hand what do you think? He said great idea and I came and uh, so we, we arrived here on March 2nd, 1969, so 50 years ago, uh, last month, and uh, we worked on a restaurant that never opened, actually. It got bogged down after many year, after a lot of work and uh, much money sunk into, uh, was bogged down by regulations, state and city and, and, and contractor issues and so on. And uh, one day, my brother and I went to lunch at a place called the Pittsburgh Lunch <laughs> in Pioneer Square, uh, where we used to go and we enjoyed. It was a very simple uh, diner type of restaurant. I've been there since it was the oldest running restaurant at the time in Seattle, since 1893. And uh, we saw a sign saying, this is the last day. And so we talked to the owners and... Uh, they told us that uh, uh, they were wanted to retiring to retire there they couldn't find any help uh, there was no money to be made it was a hard business uh, and so uh, my brother made him and his wife made them an offer and in nine days and nights we reopened it as the Brasserie Pittsburgh and uh, by chance I was lucky enough I had I was scheduled to leave the country the immigration department would not allow me to stay, but my brother catered an event uh, that, was ho uh, that was attended by the General Consul of Canada, Mr. Campbell Moody, who told my brother that his chef was going to Europe for two months and said, can your brother cook? <laughs> and he said, sure he can. We've done all this work. We do caterings. So I was uh, asked to come and lived in a residence of the General Consul of Canada and for, worked for there for two months, uh, fixed breakfast, toast in the morning and lunch for the ladies and dinner uh, in the evening for them. And at the end of the two months, I was sent to the immigration where I was able to get a green card. 
it was truly a chance in a million, and I felt I was meant to be here. I think so. I mean, you have so many wonderful stories to tell. Your stories of growing up in France in the aftermath of the war. I mean, so much to tell. That um, that's another interview. Um, I'm I'm interested in knowing because you've been here with um, Chris um, for ten days, uh, and and I think you probably. Uh, we already expressed that you know how different things were. Take us back to what it was like, how different it was from what you experienced in France to what you found in those days in, in Seattle or California in, in the restaurant and food industry, and also what exactly is different now. Um, in starting in 1969, since I apprenticed with my brother for, for four years before I went on my own and opened my restaurant in Spokane, Washington, for the World's Fair, uh, basically you could find uh, many things. Leaks were almost impossible to find. The mother of all soup, you know, the first basics, you could find onions, but leeks very rarely. I remember going to the market and finding a, 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 an old farmer who had a little bowl with four shallots. And we said, what did you, you know, you grow these, please plant as many as we want, we'll buy everything you grow. <laughs> and we did this for many things, but things like watercress was, was unknown. Um, even mushrooms, chanterelles, morels, every time we saw someone we said, please bring us everything you have. And uh, at the brasserie, we started serving things like calf livers and skates with black butter and capers and sweetbreads and all kind of things that were un totally unknown, even there uh, in Seattle. Only people that had traveled to Europe uh, seemed to understand. So in a way, my brother de demystified French cooking uh, for Seattle. But it was very hard to find things. Um, John Raleigh was very instrumental in changing the, the seafood and fish culture in Seattle. I had the pleasure of working uh, with my, my boss, uh, Robert Rossellini, uh, and work through, with the help of John, John Raleigh. And it was amazing what he did and accomplished there. Um, in this day and age, uh, having had a, a hand uh, in helping bring the culture of food and, and locally grown items. When people would say to me, uh, you know, oh, we, 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 we're going to buy something that comes from a farm, I said, what do you think we do in French cooking? <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, of course, we don't, use, we don't, use, we don't open a can. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's wonderful to see the evolution of cooking. Seattle has become a great food town, and the country has become finally a town that appreciates food, real food. Well done. It also allowed chefs, after a couple of generations, to come and learn with the traditional history of cooking. And people like Pépin, who was so, Jacques Pépin, so in instrumental. Uh, and of course Alice Waters and, and uh, all of these people had such an influence eventually have brought 
the quality of cooking in this country to a fine to a fine level. But in the same time, we have two new generation or generation that come uh, with totally different uh, desire and 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 culture, and that of course is affecting the the restaurant business. But they have money and they seem to be willing to spend it, even if they don't know or understand it. But they love they seem to love food, and it's nice to see. But it takes time. But it's 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 very helpful. But it's very different business from when when I was in the business even 20 years ago. Okay, so 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 this is a tough question. It's all right. The guys are paying one another on the back. So so I'm gu I'm guessing the answer to my question is going to be a very positive answer. For example, what do you think of your protege? After, after, after 30, 30 years after you made the foolish decision to turn your kitchen over to him, how do, you, how do you think he's doing now? Well, first of all, he was a very confident young man when I met him. And I remember telling him, I visualized, he might have been totally accurate, but uh, telling him, you know, we, we make... Uh, all our appetizers, we do our own pate, we do everything in house, we make merguez sausage, uh, we make this, we make that, we make confit. Uh, and every time he said something, he said, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> we say, we make all our own dessert, we make our own ice creams. I can do that. <laughs> so obviously, I think both my wife, which liked him a lot, by the way, uh, and I were, were thrilled to have someone who had a love of food that that really transcended uh, and and the fact that he was interested in learning more things that I could teach him or show him um, because I really didn't spend much time teaching him but he he learned by what we did mm -hmm. what we're trying to accomplish more than anything else and obviously for now I'm so very proud of what he's accomplishing. It's really quite amazing. Uh, he's taken uh, what he's learned through the years and maybe a little bit from his time in Seattle with me uh, to a level that I could have never imagined. And, and it, it's wonderful. His food is brilliant. Now you've been goofing off together for over a week and a half or something. Um, what do you think is the, the thing that you exchange the most interest over? I mean, like, what's different from what you used to do or he used to do, and what's he interested in what you're doing? Give me an evaluation of the status of the art here. So, interestingly enough, not much has changed. Um, <laughs> I'm a little more mature than I was then. I was very immature. When, when I started with Jean-Paul, um, he showed me a tremendous amount of things because I had... So I didn't need Jean-Paul to show me so much how to cook or how to get flavors, but I didn't know what was merguez. I didn't... I'd never seen a chacrute. I'd never really seen a proper cassoulet, um, a, a mouclade, all these kind of French basics that... Um, that were really, you know, they were very hard to find in restaurants at that time, and even in French restaurants, because French restaurants at that time had a tendency to do kind of like 
you know, a, a piece of salmon with frozen puff pastry and a sprig of dill and blackberry butter or something like that. You know, so so this so it was really neat to have somebody ground you in these like in this in this classical bistro food that, that was very new to me, and especially like the North African influence on the, on the French food was very very new to me. And and Jean Paul really his his food really slanted a lot towards that. So it was a, a tremendous opportunity for me. It was my first executive chef's job. I probably was was ready in some ways, but I probably was immature in some ways as well. Um. But having him, having him here has just been amazing. We haven't seen each other in 30 years. We talk all night. We talk all day. Um, it's like we've never left. And, um, and it's awesome because I have now in my own restaurant a second set of eyes who can say, Chris, you know, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. Um, I see this. I see that. And, and in reality, the, the advice is pretty much always on the money. So it's, it's fantastic to have somebody who after all these years – can still mentor me, and I'm 55. You know, so so this is this has been an, an absolute godsend for us. It's been fantastic. It's one of the best times of my life, and a time I'm always going to remember. Now, I, I probably will always remember your duck of the week. <laughs> I'm very basic about this, <laughs> not philosophical, philosophical, but actually, I love the duck. Um, any other final comments you'd like to have? You're doing, um, you're sort of retired, but you're doing uh, con- work with the Concierge Society. Oh, I'm, I have retired. Uh, I'm going to be 75 in a month and a half ago uh, from now. And my wife's about to retire, but I spent the last uh, 20 years as chef concierge, uh, first with major corporations then in luxury residentials and in the hotel business and so uh, I'm involved with the Concierge Guild of Seattle as an ex-officio as I held every position on the board through the years and uh, I'm able to keep a finger uh, in, in the pulse of the hospitality industries and restaurants and things in East area, which I love which keep me busy well, you know, Jean-Paul, I really enjoyed meeting you, and I would say, if I were writing an article about you, I would describe you as nimble in mind and spirit, and that is certainly an asset in today's restaurant industry. And you, Christian Frangiatis, I, <laughs> I love you dearly, as you know. Thank you for everything. It's, uh, this has been fun. This has been great. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to have a slightly different subject right after the break, so don't go away, because we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, next up, we've got another uh, Frenchman, yeah, <laughs> Richard I did. I didn't Bertinet. Even realize that, didn't realize that the frogs are coming. Huh? <laughs> so anyhow. He, he's not in the program for that reason. He's in the program because he makes the most sublime bread. Yes. Uh, he, 
he has a, a bakery in Bath, so and a bakery he again school, is, too. is not in living in France in these days. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and he has a school, and his book is called Crumb, which is what it's all about. Um, he had he had two other books before that. He had Crust, and what was the other? And now he has Crumb. Dough, dough, I think. I think do, I think dough, 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 dough crust, in and now and, and now crumb, crumb, um, which is what you have to to actually perfect in a good loaf of bread, the crumb. So, but anyhow, um, Richard's book is Bake Brilliant Bread, and that's what we're going to talk him about. Him about. Here's someone who knows everything you would want to know about bread. Uh, we've interviewed interviewed you before, Richard Bertinet, um, probably one of your earliest books. There is, as I mentioned before, um, a s- sequence of your writing, and you're on your, what, sixth book? Yes, hello. Um, yes, six books now. Um, I would never believe that a few years ago, but uh, yeah, my first book back in uh, 2005 was called Doe, and Doe was all about making people rediscover the feel and the love of making bread at home and hand-baking and using uh, the technique I use, which is uh, very different, of course, from the traditional kneading. And then came Crust in 2007, uh, where I introduced people to a bit more complicated recipe, where we started talking about sourdough and, and, and uh, just a step up from dough, really. Um, and then I wrote... Uh, Cookbook and then pastry book and my last one now it's crumb so <laughs> you follow the dough crust crumb uh, it makes sense to me I like simple word for my title now if you are very um, keen on getting people to understand the the feel of the dough which is essential to getting the right crumb and one of the things that I, I really tickled me was when you said one of your most wonderful experiences was teaching that the blind child how to make bread. Yeah, I, baking in general is a very tactile thing. The dough, the feel of the dough can make people being scared of it sometimes. Yeah, people don't like stickiness, so they don't like some stickiness. They just try to compost it with flour to make it very hard and easy to work with, which is wrong. Um, and, but when you start understanding a dough feel and having a bit more affinity with the dough and using your finger and your touch, your, your senses of touches, then you take control of the dough. And yes, I was teaching um, a blind person in a, in a school once and it was amazing to watch his hand wor- working and uh, having no fear because he, he, he couldn't see. And I realized then that the fear of, um, of the dough and the stickiness comes from your eyes, not from your fingers. Because if you see something sticky, you you already move your body away from it. So I, I, I really enjoy it. I learned a lot watching his hand work. Yes. Uh, um, it's, uh, it made me realize that more what I was doing was right, but it's still, it's still put into words, really. Have, it, you, have you ever thought of teaching people to, to bake with a, with a blindfold? Oh, there's a big craze at the moment, isn't there? There's a film in the States who came out and people walking around doing blind things. Uh, oh, okay. I've tried for fun in the kitchen, but <laughs> I, I can't do it. But I, I only teach things which matter to people. And 
I don't see why people would do bad for you in your kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> That's asking for trouble. <laughs> no, uh, we we pro- we sort of know why, because we've been in in the city you adopted quite quite a number of times. And what, one of my cousins lives, in fact, on the outskirts of Bath. So yeah. so we go, we go there all the time. But why why did you select that? I mean, it's it's. You're from Norman, from Brittany in France. Brittany, yeah. Why, why yeah, Bath? Brittany, yeah. Well, I came to UK 33 years ago. Um, I came for two weeks holiday, and I ended up in the New Forest and stayed there for 10 years. And Where were and you? In the New Forest. Yes. I was in the New, New Forest. Forest. Yeah. Then I moved to London for 10 years, and met my wife and started my family, and then we... Um, the big, the, the big city of London was a bit too scary with children, so we decided to move. And because I, I really, we were really wanted to open the school, we had carte blanche ready to to go where we wanted. And Bath, really, at the time, back in 2005, fitted the, the right uh, the right mold because of the, the, this good school. Bath is a place that everybody in the world wants to come. If they come to UK, it's very easy access to London. It tickles the boxes. And it's a beautiful place to live. So um, we came to the Ricky and signed the promises for our school. And um, the rest is history, as we say, really. Now, wh- where are you in relation to the Royal Crescent? Oh, we're five minutes walk from it. Okay. We <laughs> by, we, yeah, you can't get more central from where we are. We, oh, yes, one of the, we Our building is one of the oldest stable um, in, 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 in Bath. So uh, there's a lot of history in the building, and we we just at the back of the of the, the circus. So the school is just at the back of the circus. So mm-hmm. you can't get more more prestigious uh, address in uh, in Bath than where we are. So now you started you started with a bakery. I mean, you started with um, a, a class, a teaching school. And, yeah, that's right. and then everybody wanted to, the bread, so you then set up a bakery, right? That's right, yeah. We started the school in 2005. Then later on, um, we started making bread just for fun on a Friday night and serve it upstairs in a cooking school. Um, we did a little shop just for to see what, you, what people would like because people, people were asking for it. And we sold out the first two or three Saturday, and then we knew then opening a bakery with the right next step for us to do. Uh, so we started very small, and now we've grown to a much, much bigger uh, business with a bakery in London. Um, and we supply uh, wet rolls from market, and we supply pâte à manger, so the bread, plus a lot of shop, uh, restaurants, and, and so on. So it's grown to a, a much bigger monster than when we started. The door has grown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did, did you did you ever expect all these wonderful things would happen? No, I, life is funny because I, I always see my life as a lot of pieces that I, I put, I keep putting together to end up with a, like a big jigsaw, really, uh, and keep looking for the last ten pieces. So it's uh, everything I've done in my life so far was to, to do what we're doing now, and uh, I'm looking for the next next thing to do. So. I think when we opened the school, we, we knew we had something right, and the book came out on the same time. And of course, because um, we won a few uh, few prizes in the state and in Nietzsche with the first book, that really helped us to put us back, put us on the map. And we still got people coming from, from, from the state, from all over the world now, coming to Bath to learn with us. 
so there's still uh, a thirst for people to for knowledge and and wanting to learn how to do things. Um, so for me, that's my that's my petrol, that's my my fuel all the time is uh, teaching people now. That's what I really love doing, and so people can pass it on and and, and learn new skills, um, which really fulfill my my my, my day to day basis really. Do you, do you start out by oh, saying your three most important tools are free, your hand, your instincts, and patience? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's the same for any job, really, because I, I think we live in a society now where we want everything quick. There's an obsession with, uh, even on our phone, we, we're impatient with downloading, we're impatient with everything. And people want, want to make good work quick, and it's We've got to slow down some time and, and, and take our time to understand how things are done. And there's some things can't be rushed. There's something take time to learn. And using your hands is a skill we need to, to, to rediscover sometimes. We use our brain for a lot of things, but our hands are such a good tool. And if we use our hand, our patience and our gut feeling, that's another one that uh, um, I think people are too scared to use. Your gut feeling are such a huge part of what we do every day. Um, uh, if you use those three together, then you can make amazing things. I like that you're... I never thought about it, but you trace the history of bread making, which is, of course, very, very old, right? But you talk about the start of it and, and techniques that developed and... Um, community ovens and you know that whole thing yeah, yeah. and then the invention of the mixers um, eventually you, you come to the conclusion that using a, um, a, a, a bread uh, attachment on your mixer is probably the best thing after you learn the feel of the bread yeah I mean it's the tradition of doing things by hand to a machine is, is normal but it, I was teach in my classes, you can't use a machine if you don't know what the machine do. And we assume we do and we don't. So to teach people to do things by hand, have a feel for it. So they can put what they learn by hand into the machine. It's amazing how people feel more confident using the machine. If I give a machine and they don't understand the dough, they they won't know when to start the machine. They don't know what dough should feel and and, and smell and and, uh, uh, what it should be like. So it's important for us to teach them by hand first, then they use a machine, um, and understand also how the machine was designed and what what, what the machine is doing. <laughs> so yeah, the technique the technique I use is different; it's very different. But I, I condense all my research into a few pages because you can write about the science of bread that people get bored very quickly. In a in a very simple story of what I say to all my class when I teach. So you know, while we stop kneading and and pumping the dough very hard back so long ago because people were dying from bad nutrition. The bread was too heavy and dense, so we had to change the way of doing things. And that's the evolution of baking. That's the evolution of uh, of the way we eat. Um, and um, well, now it's now we're, we're getting. I mean, we went through that phase where people were terrified of bread because of uh, carbohydrates or whatever it was. I know, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, now we're right. getting back to it. But I'll still, I'll tell you, I, I wouldn't eat bread that's not great bread. I mean, I, I, it has to be good bread or I can't stand it. Yeah. 
uh, also we 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 gone the whole the whole circle now because if you look at them now the Saudo and he started in the state of course but he's, he's just some great bakery everywhere but now people only think of if they don't make Saudo they are bad bakers and there's he's gone in a way a bit too far the other side sometimes with Saudo. It's like the Holy Grail, and people just are too scared to go there, and they want to pick their pocket in their bread. And uh, yeah, We interviewed a woman who has a, a sourdough cooking school in England. You, you probably know okay. You probably know her, right? She, she's, she's in Northampton, I think, somewhere like that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, she's busy, and people want to know how to make sourdough. It's yeah, a, I mean, it's a huge craze for that, and I... I we took the the, the the step back when we opened the school that I can't teach sourdough people when they don't understand how to make the basic white bread. Exactly. So we 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 take we take them on a journey. And I, I don't believe what I've learned in over, over the years. I can teach it in one day, if possible. You can give an idea to people, but they won't ma- they won't master it. To master skill, take time. To master our dough feel and everything, take time. And when we teach our five day by class, people, I put them through their pace. You know, we put them through, uh, a lot of physical work, but mental work as well. So they learn how you feel to be under pressure with a lot of dough around you. And that's the only way you can learn. So we mix about 190 kilo of dough during a week. And people absolutely love it because they, they, they use part of the brand they don't, that they didn't know they had. And in baking, you've got to use all the fancies all the time. So it's a, it's, um, uh, I, I, I think I teach people the same way that I teach my, my guys in the bakery. You know, it's, uh, it's the only way I, I've learned from being an apprentice and I pass on the same skill. Um, and it's amazing actually when people are under pressure, they learn a lot, they, they learn faster, they're much more accurate and they use their guts more, 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 uh, more accurately as well and they make less mistakes. Uh, yeah, it's so, funny, yeah. it's, it's funny Richard, you, you talk about the cult of sourdough but in fact, it, it's on its second cult, because the, the first cult was back in the 1960s and 1970s. When You're right, yeah. When if yeah. you went to San Francisco, case, yeah. when yeah. if you went to San Francisco, you, you had to bring loaves back for all your friends. Yeah, Be- yeah. Because yeah. It, was, it was the only place in the world where they knew how to make sourdough bread. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, 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 sourdough baking has been for never, never stopping France, you know, from small bakeries. Uh, it's moved on, but uh, of course people want the cheaper bread and faster bread and so on, so it's changed a bit that way. The, the prior got now, sourdough has become, you need to have a big beard and tattoos to start making sourdough, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but now, now I think pizza. the long, slow no, we, uh, no, rising we, is what's popular now in pizza and in bread. By the way, it's it's fair to say that the picture, the picture of you in the front as you covered in flour... And with and with a beard, <laughs> so, so, so you qualify. I don't have a beard, but uh, oh, you uh, don't. I, I was thinking, right, I'm, thinking I was thinking the, the a funny picture of the book with tattoos and and a, and a long beard as well. Look like a Let's let's get back to something. Um, I have a hard time with the science of all this, I and mean, that's why I'm not a baker. Um, but, yeah. But um, I try to understand. Um, I do understand your thing about people adding too much flour after they go to the trouble of, of weighing all the ingredients on a scale. Then they follow a recipe that says 
um, add flour as needed, and I, I get that. But I don't get the... I was taught to knead bread using the heel of my hand to push and, and bring it over, and it really does the same thing as what you're talking about, is that you bring air pockets into the bread. So why uh, are you opposed to kneading? Uh, no, I don't agree, because the kneading, if you speak to people uh, the word kneading, they put the, the heel of the hand and they push really hard. And if you speak to a potter, who make pottery, and the first thing they do is clay, it's the same as kneading. And they, so the potter to take all the air out of his clay to make his pottery, and then for bread making, it's the same technique as the potter to try to put more air inside. For me, the two of them don't make sense. And we stopped that technique long time ago in France. That's where we stopped pummeling the dough really hard with a stick or with our feet or fist. And we started to stretch it and fold it over itself to get more air inside, to be able to, to get the dough um, more uh, more light and, 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 and more absorbent. Yeah, but my uh, mother and grandmother... Um, stretched it and then folded it over, but then pushed it with the heel of the hand. Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. is that wrong? But it's not. It, it, that's what. Uh, if you look at what the mixer does now, the mixer the way they design the the Artifex mixer, they're all stretchy and folding the right itself. They don't push it down. So um, it's. Uh, I, I think we we still pass on skill from. Uh, mother to grandmother to daughters and so on and so on from a very long time ago without understanding what it was. But I always say to people, if it does work for you, if it does the type of bread you want for your family and everything, it's great. If you want it to be lighter, then mm-hmm. have a look at the way you do things and maybe have a bit more water and be more comfortable to add more water and just see how the dough change and if it's lighter. Um, the tendency also is to use very strong bread flour, very high protein flour and very little water. So you end up with a basketball, which is very hard to digest. <laughs> so it's, um, uh, you know, one thing was always struck me in books sometimes, they would say, you know, need vigorously for 20 minutes. 20 <laughs> minutes is a long time, you know. <laughs> and and we got older people come to the class and they say, I can't need though because my wrists are really uh, painful. <laughs> you know, so if, if before you even start baking, you're already in pain, you got no chance. Um, so the technique I use, you, you use your core and your legs more than you do your arms. Um, so it takes a bit longer to explain and to get, but when you get this technique, you, you never go back to make hard dough. It's impossible because my technique doesn't work with a hard dough. Right. So there's, you know, there's so many words missing bread, you know, and Jim LaHaye in New York does know the technique and, and so on. So it, I, I think it's for people to do something they're comfortable with um, and don't be scared to explore the technique and just... Uh, just to find a recipe and technique to work for them for for their home baking, uh, which is a, at the end of the day, that's what we want: is people to be more aware of what they eat and and, and what they put in their stomach. So, um, yeah, well, you you really do a lot with your illustrations, it's step by step, um, so, so people can watch you particularly yeah. and watch how your hands move, which I think is great because it's just it's still photographed. Um, and there's also, yeah, I mean, also my first two books used to have DVDs, but nobody used DVD anymore. So on this one, there's a link for our YouTube channel where okay. a lot of the techniques and everything are, are linked to the book. Um, so you can see. Oh, that would uh, be good, yeah. 
Yeah, so if, if people go inside the book, there's a link for YouTube, and they can see all the update on the book. And, oh, and, that's and great. Yeah. So yeah, you, because, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say that you you cover a lot of ground in, in this book besides your basic techniques, which I think once people get into it, they're going to have to do over and over and over because practicing is part of what's going on, and certainly watching a video is going to help. But yes, no, absolutely, yeah. it, 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 it does take time and it, it takes a bit of patience. But when you crack it, it's the feeling is incredible. I see it in my class all the time when. People say, I can't do it, I can't do it. And I keep saying to them, you can do it, you haven't cracked it yet. And uh-huh. when they do it, the, the smile on their face is incredible because it's that sense of achievement of that you master the door, you show the door is boss, and then you, you don't have a fear anymore. So you want to do it even more. Even if I give them the message, it's good. I say, no, I want to do it by hand because it's control. It's all about control, understanding what's happened, and feeling, feeling in harmony with the door. That's, that's where the, the key is. Um, it's, 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 it's a great process. It's very therapeutic. Uh-huh. You know, we got we we got people from every background coming to our class, from soldiers, ex armies to you know, uh, to uh, all sorts of people. And what it does to them is immerse themselves into something very different, uh, where they can't think of anything else. Because their hands are indoor, and their elbows are indoor as well. <laughs> yeah. So they, they they really got to to think differently of the way they do things. Uh, yeah, I want people and to I know was, that, that actually there's more than just the basics in your book because uh, you you cover so many different styles of of baking. I mean things like leopard bread, uh, this one, you know, chocolate pistachio and orange loaf. Um, you, it's I mean there are more types than I ever knew, and, and you, I mean you have all these interesting recipes. So it's not just a a basic. Um, instructional manual on baking bread. You have inspired oh, yeah, recipes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, so I want right, this one: toasted pine nut, honey, and pear crustade. I want to do uh, that. We have a pear tree. Oh yeah, we did some last week with some poached pear from uh, we, we got from Angers, from France. It was beautiful. But what I try to do with crumb is to get different technique and and sweet doughs and and kind of enrich dough to, to get a different crumb texture you got to go because it's not just about making sourdough I mean there's a few sourdough recipes but it's not a book which focuses on sourdough there's plenty of this everywhere so it's to, uh, from the Queen Island there's some specific recipes from Brittany where I come from that nobody heard of which is a bit new and making making a, like a paste with creme fraiche first which is no oh, way wow. of making brioche um, oh. there's plenty of it as well and I love pictures as well so oh your pictures are great I want yeah, this I, I, caramelized apple and calvados brioche. I want that one. <laughs> oh, that's that's delicious. Yeah, the, the, the more you turn the page, the more you want it, all of them. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think also I, I don't like to have too many recipes in the book. It's about eighty recipes, I think, which is plenty for a book. But a lot of pictures. Every recipe will have a picture. Um, I see that's come from, uh, I've discovered, I've discovered, I, I, yeah, I always knew I was a bit dyslexic, so I can't, I can't write too many words, I've got to start uh-huh. simplifying, but I know if you get the picture, yes. the picture has got so much more meaning than word, and, uh, if you master the technique, then the picture makes sense, if that makes any sense. Look at this gorgeous panettone. <laughs> no, there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, recipes in there. There's some complicated one, but, I think it's a, it's a journey. When people start baking, they, 
they take their time and they try one and uh, to, to, to be a good baker you need to be consistent and by, by I mean you've got to, to bake as often as you can consistently if you, if you bake once every six months then your skill won't develop but if you bake once a week it's amazing how much you can achieve that, you know and some yeah. people are Baking so often now is crazy. That used to be a tradition. People would always have one or two baking days a week. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, yeah. But now you get so many bakeries, you can go to the baker. Exactly. Now, in France, we go to the baker every day. We didn't even dream to bake at home. It's just, there's no need. <laughs> yeah, here's another one that I want to make. It's um, winter pain surprise. Oh, you won't like this one. It's, Why? It's, it's, it's disgusting. You won't like it, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> it's fabulous. <laughs> it's everything that you need in a loaf of bread. It's, uh, it's a whole meal. Yeah, I, I, I did this one when I was skiing once, and uh, people loved it, so I keep doing it all the time when I do big demos. So you can do it with a large loaf of bread. or It's a good way of using stale bread. And then you stuff it with potatoes, lard on, creme fraiche, rubber, <laughs> and cheese on, and creme fraiche. Terrible. You know, a bit of leaks, you know, and you bake all this in the oven, wrapped in, in, in film, in a pepper and, a, and silver foil, and then when you open it, the smell is incredible, and then you just finish up to gratiné on the top. Um, it's an amazing bite. You can you can wrap it up, and you could take it for a picnic if you want to, like that. Yeah. Uh, we do a summer version, which is full of vegetables and tomatoes, peppers, a lot of olive oil, and mozzarella yeah. as well. They they work well. My family did, which is Sicilian, did one with um, Italian bread, basically, but filled with uh, spinach and cheese, and, and you could expand it to pepperoni and, you know, all that stuff. Oh, very nice. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, this now. is Richard Bertinet, who's the go-to for all of your baking, bread baking uh, needs. It's called Crumb. And um, he has this subtitle that you really didn't tell us about, but from talking to you, I get the idea. It's called Show the Dough Who's Boss. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Richard, when, when we come to Bath next, will you make the special bread for us? I'll make you whichever you want. You can order it in advance and we'll eat it together. Great. Thank you very much, Richard. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you very much. Au revoir. Au revoir. Okay, well, that's great. And we will email you when it's going to air, Richard. You, oh, fantastic. You, you just know so much about bread. It's just, I forgot to ask you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, here we are now, continuing our baking theme. Our last segment it takes us on an international tour of baking. It's called A Baker's Passport. And um, it's Susie Norris has done a great job rounding up some of the, the most outstanding, iconic baking treats around the world. And uh, listen to Susie, and she'll tell you all about it. Susie Norris, you have a very varied and interesting background. 
Um, and I think one aspect of that is very clear is that you have a, you're a teacher because you're doing a lot of teaching in this book called Baker's Passport, subtitled yes. Recipes for Breads, Savory Pies, Vegetarian Dishes, Tarts, Cakes, and Cookie Classics. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. Did I you cover have, a lot of ground. Did, I love your, did you ever your find, did you ever find something you didn't want to bake? Oh boy, that there are. There, I don't like licorice, but I can't even think of a licorice pie. I've never had the challenge of uh, having to to say no. I won't bake that licorice uh, pie. Well, Queen, <laughs> Queen, Queen Elizabeth II is a is a total fan of licorice, apparently from Calabria. Uh-huh. Yeah. So well, anyhow, you. you I wanted to mention your uh, culinary travel blog. It's won the um, IACP. Um, award, the Food Market Gypsy, it's called, which is a fabulous name, Susie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so It's uh, this, the vagabond spirit. Yes. Now, the, we kept thinking, because Baker's was in the title, that this was going to be a, um, a pastry book, and it's not, is it? It's it's more than that, is it, and that's why the subtitle is so long. I, I yes, do, it is. I, I throw so many things in it because you, you know, for vegetarians, there are those wonderful baked uh, vegetarian items that that are um, that are hard to find um, in a baking book, really. And and um, and cooking books. Well, th- this has got a little something of, of pastry, a little something of uh, roasted uh, items. Um, you know, we have. Cakes, big fancy European cakes, down to simple, wonderful American um, basic cakes. Yeah, well, didn't you say anything that comes out of an oven? That's right. Anything that comes out of an oven. If it's, it comes out of an oven, it's baked, and it, it has a spot in this book. So if, if, I'd know, if I'd known last night, as I was cooking my chicken, that I could use Dijon mustard all over it, Oh yeah, I could have done that, but I didn't. Yeah. But I didn't. I didn't know that Susie had a recipe for that. <laughs> and we <laughs> also you know. truffles. You could use truffle. Yeah, tr- on that well, too. yeah. We well, we use we use truffle oil on the halibut the other day. That was I, good. I, I, I don't want to use all the truffle oil at once. Yeah, there's not very. There's not a whole yeah. lot of truffle oil. <laughs> we, we don't get a whole. We don't get a whole lot of it. When, when we when we get it, we kind of savor it. Yes, a delicacy. So, for you, basically, savory and sweet, it's all really about baking, period, right? That's right, that's right. And and there's that, that home-cooked goodness, uh, home baking, uh, because there are a lot of people who are intimidated by baking. Um, they understand that it you have to measure quite a lot and be specific, which is true. But there's also a way to consider baking where... You're going to put a lot of good things together and and bake it, and it will come out in this casserole or come out as a a really warm uh, comfort food classic that you can share for family, or if you're you know by yourself on an afternoon and want a project that will have these these kinds of uh, savory results. Um, it's no good to be afraid of baking; you have to embrace it. Yeah, and um, do you know uh, what is her name? She she has. Pie Camp. She's in Seattle. Oh, I don't. I think I have. I've not been to Pie Camp, but I I have seen it. I have yeah, seen she's it. wonderful. She, she's actually in, yeah. she lives she lives in Port Angeles. Port Angeles, not, not, ah. in, not in Seattle itself. 
Port Angeles being being famous for the fact that the Canadian the Canadian terrorist who wanted to blow up LAX on Christmas Day. Oh. That's where he entered the United States on his journey. Uh-huh. Mm. But uh, people just love pies. I mean, uh, yeah. But I I said there was it was kind of the they have. I think it's kind of a big uh, trend for pies. I think it defeats donuts in a minute. Pies. Yes, you know, and it's it's a good example of of one of those things that t- intimidates people, but the. The recipes here are give you a very basic technique of um, I, I use a um, uh, my KitchenAid mixer, you know, just an old workhorse of an item. You can you can certainly do it by hand, but in with a paddle attachment in a, an electric stand mixer, in le- less than five minutes you have pi- perfect pie dough. I mean, so easy. It's not easy for me. It's easy for you because you know all about doing it. And you've done it a million times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you don't you don't forget to bake the bottom crust. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's funny you say that because that is the way a tart tatin was born. Is that the the innkeeper forgot to put the crust under the apples, uh-huh. and so she had she had her apples all ready to go. And then she said, "Oh no, I didn't. I didn't put the pie crust in." So she put a layer of puff pastry on top, baked it, and flipped it out in in the end. And now we have the classic uh, tart. <laughs> there you go. See, my, my my mother used to make this cake called pineapple upside down cake. Oh yes. Where, where you do essentially the same thing because the pineapple's on the bottom, yeah. and when you when you serve it, you flip it over. Yeah, whatever happened to that? I mean, Pine- what, pineapple upside down cake. I mean, I have never, I haven't had it in ten million years. It was probably it's probably you like know. probably like tuna casserole. <laughs> well, I it think it's, it's ready it had, for a revival, don't you? Well, I, think, I don't, uh, I don't know. I think we could bring it back. You're, you're in charge. You're in charge of. You're in charge of a blog. You can put it out that way, right? Yes, I can. And in fact, uh, I'm I'm hoping to do a volume two of a baker's passport because there were so many wonderful classics. That's a perfect example that that may be out of fashion, but they're they're excellent. They, they, there's a technique involved there, and um, and and a, and quite a good um, yellow cake. That's the you know caramelized pineapple. I ready to go on that. Now, figure that out. Now some some of these some of these people that you that you give space to in your book, like Catherine de Medici's pastry chef. <laughs> were, were, were really remarkable people. This was the guy who invented ice cream and gelato, as well as macarons. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, you know, and with food history, there are so many controversies, aren't there? Of, of well, was it influenced by this country, or was it? You know, pasta is probably a good example. Is it? Was it the, the Italians, or was it perhaps the Chinese, or really was it? The Moroccans, right? You know. <laughs> yeah, who, no, who was it? We had to go back on the, to the spice trade, I suppose. Well, you, well there's, there's this ongoing controversy over, wh- over whether or not the pavlova was invented in New Zealand or invented in Australia. Ah, ah, and the New, New Zealanders will never give in. <laughs> and wh- whose side are you on? Australia. I'm on the Australian side. <laughs> so we lived in Australia. Ah. We, we, live, we lived there for seven. I lived there for seven years, and be, be, believe me, there's a lot. A lot of Pavlova can pass your lips. Yeah. <laughs> in, se- in seven years. 
But you know what? The, that's a, a meringue. Do you have meringues in this book? I mean, they're tricky. And you talk about tricky. You have to really yes. check the weather yes. before you make it. Yes, you do. You have to be able to forgive yourself if you fail a time or two. And um, we have a little bit of meringue, um, particularly in, in the macaron recipe. And, um, and yes, you're so, they're, 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 you could really, I mean, people have done a, a whole book on, on meringues because uh, they are a component in many classic desserts and, and yet on their own um, can be tricky. And there's Italian meringue and French meringue and, um, and, and we could go on and on. But it's really, it's about the stability of the egg whites and not over-whipping them. I, I, I'm, intrigued. I'm intrigued about something, because this is such an incredi- incredibly complete book. Oh, I mean, thank I, you. We, look, we looked all over the place. We looked for recipes for almost everything we knew, and it was in there. Was, was, oh. there, was there anything you left out? Well, she had to, because she's going to do another book. <laughs> yes, there, yes. I'm, I, about at least 50 recipes were... I felt like, oh, oh uh, a perfect example is uh, the Madeleine cookie of France. Oh, that's oh, which is a Wonderful classic cookie. Yes, I know I'm a little bit ashamed that it's not in there. But, you know, I, I had a recipe I liked. I didn't love it. I needed to develop it, and then I needed to research it, and I needed to go around and taste about 50 of them in Paris <laughs> and really have a good good sport of it to to. to Feel that I was confident in saying, "Here's um, Madeline that, re- that represents the tradition of the Madeline cookie," and that yeah. that takes some time to do. So um, that'll definitely be in the next book. Now, was that was that associated with the Place Madeleine? Uh, you know that that's a great question, and I don't know the answer. I don't know. So okay. I have to I have to go find out. Well, and of course, see. it's very famous from from Proust. Uh, yeah, the you know, sure. Little, and it's this a very similar recipe to uh, a basic French sponge cake. So, what the heck? We got to we got to get to the bottom of this. There's there are always more questions right. than you can. Now you, yeah. now yes, you, you said is it Hervé or Hermé on the Place Madeleine that actually modernized yes. the, the, uh, the macaron? The macaron. Yes. Yes. And, and we and we we were there one Christmas time. They they have a competition with Fouché across the place. Oh boy! Oh, that's yeah. something. As, as to who can have the most luscious Christmas light, <laughs> who can have the most Christmas lights? Oh, and, yeah. and, and of course, who who can sell the most outrageous and delicious cookies as well? It is really uh, it is an art form. It is an art form, and I I love to see those those uh, those artists. Um, Competing, or or even just really in the daily work of um, filling their pastry cases, you know, uh, so much artistry. Involved. Oh yes, these are gorgeous windows. I mean, and, and such long lines to buy something. Yeah, I mean, yes, people have a lot yes. of disposable income in Paris because this stuff isn't cheap. <laughs> I guess they go to church no. and then they buy it on the way home. Huh? <laughs> now, the, I, I'm, I'm envious of not only about your pie baking abilities, but um, the, the stuff you do with chocolate. I mean, I have tried. There is no way I could ever do the whole chocolate routine with the tempering and all that stuff. I mean, it was, uh, I, I did the, a cookbook for a chef, and um, the, the pastry section was a pastry chef. And he yes. explained 10 million times to me about all the chocolate stuff, and I could never do it. 
But worse than that was the uh, sugar um, stuff. You know, you make the spin the sugar and stuff like that. Oh yes, spun sugar. Yes. Well, you know why it's it's mysterious. Is so much of that chemical reaction it's all invisible, right? These are these are molecules that we're talking about that change uh, their allegiance to each other, really, uh, with different heat. So you can't see any of that. The melted chocolate looks the same as melted chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, uh, but at different temperatures, uh, different things are happening to the fat molecules. So you have to take a leap of faith. I see. Unless it's ganache. Now, t- yes, tell, ganache, no leap. <laughs> t- tell, tell us the ganache story. Is that a real story? I love that story, and I, I, I hope it's real. Yeah, I that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> it's too good and to be true. It was so probably, we'll say, rumor has it. Rumor has it. Was, uh, <laughs> Go ahead. A young French chef, yes, as traditionally uh, the pastry cooks, the assistants um, in, were, were in restaurants or you know, in, in royal pastry kitchens were young people, uh, 13, 14. And um, there's some poor young fellow there with uh, this precious bowl of chocolate that he was melting. And um, I say precious because uh, chocolate coming in through Europe um, was you know, it was it was a uh, an expensive ingredient, and you couldn't count on getting it. It was still fairly, fairly rare, and and so it wasn't like a, a mass-produced chocolate where you could just get it a candy bar. And uh, so he had this precious bowl of of the dark stuff, and also had a pitcher of cream nearby. And boop! Accidentally spilled the cream into the bowl of chocolate, <laughs> and his boss, the head pastry chef of the kitchen, called him. Uh, Ganache, you fool. <laughs> and that is the French word for fool. And the poor guy just sort of sat there sheepish. What could he do? He'd ruined this uh, fabulous chocolate, and he just stirred it, whisked it as he would uh, um, a meringue. And, uh, and he produced um, the, the creamy, luscious chocolate ganache that we know today as, as a very, very versatile classic sauce. So thank you, um, you foolish boy. <laughs> now, now we, we, we were th- excited, thrilled, and very surprised to find a re- to find a recipe for guchidadi. Oh yeah, well, for guchidadi. Ah, yeah. oh, that's funny. Except, except we we take exception because we we know that Anne's Aunt Clara was the one who invented guchidadi, <laughs> and, ah, and, and yes. no 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 way would. Would she have let them copy her recipe in making fig newtons? <laughs> <laughs> so there. Well, I think she might have. She her recipe probably has some ancient connections to Sicily, perhaps. Well, that's um, that's my background. That was Aunt Clara's background. Yes. There you go. But I have. There you go. I have all these recipes for kuchidata. My Aunt Clara's kuchidata were the best. But it's Ooh. like all Italian recipes. I mean, they don't give you real measurements. <laughs> it makes, what, six dozen, right? It takes two days. It, it takes two days. days. I had a local uh, TV chef. Um, we were going to make it uh, for a program, uh, for a uh, uh, Christmas program, until he read through the recipes and realized it took two, more than two days. Fun, <laughs> I, still, I, I still think the funniest is... Anne's mother Nora used to used to make all six dozen, but then she had a, a number of friends it was and acquaintances. Well done, we couldn't cut the rest to, to, to whom she gave some. 
So Cornelius Refugiato, God rest his soul, who was a greengrocer by trade, he, he got his Gucciadati, he got a dozen and he ate them all <laughs> the first day. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> with, predi- with predictable consequences. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, the, uh, the, the fig cookies, uh, the Gucciadati things are so far removed from fig Newtons. Yeah. But, but, you know, it just, it, it's, it's one of those things. We used to, like, um, have a, a family gathering around the second day to form them and ice them and so on. Oh, nice. Yeah, because, it, I mean, you can't even do it with one person or two people. And, you know, that's exactly the spirit that I'm trying to uh, capture in the book, of that, that baking is this social... Um, thing certainly we we understand that with children of of how much children love to make those chocolate chip cookies and oh, yeah. and and yet there are so many more things to do recipes to share with people to bake together you do this part and I'll do that part and uh, and we don't have to rely on on the corporate makers of these things and and that's very true of bread as well that you don't have to rely on what they sell you at the supermarket you can really experiment with with um, classics from different regions and and the flavor that you get is is so much more superior um, with the choices of wheat we have now and with the choices of butter and all these things we can really adjust the flavorings to to either to how they originally were um, or to where we want them to be you can adapt them to to your taste right but there are certain basics, and I think that you kind of lead the um, the reader and, and um, aspiring baker into this very carefully. <laughs> oh, good. Well, yes. You know that with as a as a, a teacher, we did. We had kids who who had never held a whisk and 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 you know really had never tasted a lot of. A lot of these things. So, so starting at the beginning is a good thing. I, I believe in that. And um, and it's funny. Um, I appreciate you you thinking that the book is is um, thorough because I, I it was initially intended to be about 125 pages, and it did not feel done until I hit 225. Wow. You know, <laughs> because each category has a lot of variety. Yeah, well, this is true. Um, well, you know, listeners, start with this one and work your way through so you become like a superior baker. Yeah, and then and then, and come, then you'll and then be come back you, for the for yeah. volume two. Of yeah. Come back, come back when you're ready for volume two and volume three. And in the meantime, um, uh, the, these recipes are kind of the most popular from this blog, which you should also explore, called Food Market Gypsy. And uh, Susie yes. Norris, it's been a delight talking to you, and, and your book is delightful, too. Thank you so much. Much success. Yeah. Hello Thank to you. Diane for me. Oh, I will relay that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thanks, Susie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's hard to believe our, our hour is not only up, it's over up. <laughs> but, but, but we were having a good time we hope you were too and that you'll join us again same time same place next week and until then bye bye <laughs>